This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Before we get to the show, I just want to say thank you for all of you out there who are supporting the show by clicking on the links and purchasing the music or the books. We appreciate you very much. And for all those who haven't and are thinking about supporting us, just go inside the show notes of each episode and click on the links to the songs or the books and it take you right to where you can purchase it. And it's a win-win because you support the guests of the show, um, and we get a small commission, which then goes toward to the operations of the show. So again, for all you who have supported us, thank you so much. And for all those who are thinking about supporting us, we appreciate you as well. All right, peace. Early in the 20th century, the black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, located in the Greenwood District, became frequently referred to as the Black Wall Street of America. Legal segregation forced blacks to do business amongst themselves. As a result, the Greenwood District prospered as dollars circulated within the black community. But fear and jealousy grew in the greater Tulsa community, which led to the worst riot in American history, the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. To talk about this more, I have attorney, consultant, and author Hannibal B. Johnson. We will talk about his insightful and informative book entitled Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District. Hannibal B. Johnson, welcome to Books, Beats and Beyond. It's great to be here. Just want to say before we get into this that this is an incredible book. Incredible. And I was wondering what motivated you? Why did you take this on? Well, when I first came here in the mid-1980s, I came here directly out of law school. Um, I was asked to do a regular editorial column for one of the black newspapers called the Oklahoma Eagle. It's actually the successor to the Tulsa Star, which is a black newspaper that was around during the time of the 1921 Tulsa race riot. Hmm. So I did several guest editorials, and I was asked by the ownership of the paper, the Goodwin family, to do a series on the history of the Greenwood District, which I did, and I learned a great deal in the process because this is largely uncovered, undocumented history, at least it was up until um, up until a couple of decades ago. And even though I grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border, about 100 miles from Tulsa, I was not at all familiar with either the rich history of entrepreneurship among the black community in Tulsa or the 1921 Tulsa race riot, the devastating cataclysmic event that is the worst of the so-called race riots in 20th century American history. Mm-hmm. And how how did you come about most of this evidence for this book? Well, there are, at the time the, the book was written, there were probably somewhere between 75 and 100 individuals who were alive at the time of the 1921 Tulsa race riot. Mm. And which which meant that they were alive at the time of the, the growth and development of the historic Greenwood District as an entrepreneurial community as well. 
in addition to that, there are uh, newspaper articles around. There, there were photographs both in private homes and in museums and, and collections. Uh, there are archival materials that are around the nation as well because the event being the worst of the so-called race riots in American history during the 20th century was recorded and documented in newspapers and archival collections all throughout the United States. So there was abundant material. It just had not been collated and presented in a, in a way that would have maximum or optimal impact on the masses. And the, the biggest, um, I think, um, omission is the failure to include this rich history in curricular materials, even here in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely needs to be changed in the future. Um, so, so something in the book, if you can kind of elaborate on this, um, you know, there was African-American towns all across the nation around this time. So how did Oklahoma come to be to have more African-American towns than anywhere else in the USA? What was so special about Oklahoma back then? Well, many people of your, many people who are your listeners will be familiar with, with the so-called Trails of Tears, the forced migrations of the five civilized tribes from the southeastern United States to Oklahoma. Oklahoma was Indian Territory for for many years prior to its statehood. Then it was divided into Indian Territory on the east and Oklahoma Territory, which was open for a settlement later on in the western part of what would become the state of Oklahoma in 1907. So Oklahoma was seen sort of as a promised land where there was opportunity or perceived opportunity, uh, abundant land, and... Uh, and really an escape from the crucible that was the Deep South at the time where all the Jim Crow regimentation and segregation uh, held sway. Oklahoma, because it was not a state, was perceived to be free of those kinds of ills and therefore more hospitable to black folks. So a number of, of all-black towns formed in Oklahoma. In fact, Oklahoma had more of the so-called all-black towns than any other state in the Union, more than 50 throughout its history, about a dozen of which still exist even today. Mm. The, the irony, though, is that when Oklahoma did finally become a state in 1907, it began to mirror or to mimic the kind of racism that existed in the Deep South by passing as its first piece of legislation, Jim Crow laws that rigidly segregated railroad, railroad facilities. Yeah. So there was an active, affirmative effort here in Oklahoma in the run-up to statehood um, to really treat black people essentially as second-class citizens and to form a wedge between the black and the red mm. to make sure that there weren't alliances between black people and Native Americans. Mm, I see. So when you start talking about the Greenwood District, how was that able to to prosper more rapidly than other African-American towns? What was it about the Greenwood District? I think it's really a combination of factors. One factor was that Tulsa, the, the city of Tulsa, around the turn of the century, began to, to really blossom because of the discovery of oil in places like Glenpool, which is which is just outside Tulsa. So there's a lot of wealth and a lot of economic activity generally here in Tulsa. 
the black population at the turn of the century was about 10% of the overall population, which would be about 10,000 out of 100,000. Mm. So, for example, a number of black women worked in homes of some of the wealthy white families and brought those dollars back across the tracks, across the Fisco tracks, into the Greenwood District. The Greenwood District was a community of necessity because of the rigid segregation laws. Uh, The black people who wanted to both be consumers to purchase goods and services and to apply their trades as service providers like doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, etc., didn't really have the option of doing that in a greater Tulsa community, so they created their own insular community and traded with one another. I see. And, and, and some, it, of the, some of the pioneers, uh, some of the pioneers who who, who started the, the initial entrepreneurship in Greenwood were people, black people who had wealth that they brought with them to to to, to do their startups, and then things just blossomed after after that. Mm-hmm. And and before we go into to some of the 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 stuff that Tulsa had to offer because of successful entrepreneurs, what you just talked about, I, I think you kind of touched on that a little bit in the book, and you called it, I think it was the economic detour, if if that's right, right. Okay, you can elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, so white communities, not just in Tulsa, but but elsewhere as well, created barriers to full economic participation. And those barriers were these Jim Crow laws and just sort of customs and mores that existed generally. So black folks, to the extent that they wanted to participate economically, had to take a detour. And the detour here in Tulsa was a creation of an insular segregated community that was both um, a, a, a social community, but also an economic community where black people were able to trade with one another and to be able to, to furnish most of the goods and services that they needed to to survive and to, to entertain themselves and to, to, to be educated and, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So detour is really a reference to the fact that the that the regular community was not fully open and inclusive as we would we would have liked it to have been at the time, and certainly as communities we hope are today. I see. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I want free education, free medication, meditation, no separation, mind, body, and spirit the same, elevation, edification, a few dollars, Bank accounts with amounts with two commas. Camel riding in Egypt for two hours. Two towers restored with new power. One ain't enough. Cancer cures. Questions that I need answers for. No more violence. Some more riots. No more tyrants. Prolonged diets. I want to bring back John Lennon and Biggie. Winehouse and Whitney. Malcolm X in the 60s. Rid of debt. Kind of me and be fiction if I was blessed with the power to stretch the wealth over the net. I bring kids in the ghetto to see Japan. Meet a man that never will see his hands, but gives everything. So if if you can describe the Greenwood District, you know, what it looked like and what it had to offer to African Americans. The Greenwood District in its heyday, was roughly a 35-square-block area. And 
it included both homes and residents. And there was a high degree of home ownership in the Greenwood community, by the way, during its early part, early history. But it also included a number of, of business, many businesses, many of which were mom and pop type operations, small businesses. So there were doctors and, and lawyers and pharmacists. There were movie theaters, pool halls, dance halls, um, barber and, and beauty shops, grocery stores, just the kinds of enterprises that you sort of need in a in a neighborhood. And they those enterprises were very successful because in part and ironically, in part because of segregation. Because it was segregation that forced black people to do business with one another and to support one another financially. Later on when integration comes along and is in full sway Dollars began to circulate outside the community, and it undermines the financial foundation of the community. So integration is is really a negative factor, a factor that led to the de- decline of the Greenwood community. Mm-hmm. As ironic as that sounds, particularly as hard as we fought for integration, the reality is that integration had had negative as well as positive effects. The other notable negative effects of, of integration, I think some of your listeners would, would, would agree, is the effect on education, where a lot of black teachers and administrators, because of integration, lost their jobs, or if they kept jobs, they kept less favorable, less prominent positions, because whites in the integration piece were, were more highly favored. So it's important to think about um, both the negatives and the positives of of that phenomenon that we call integration. Right, right. Now, what outside of the community, what actually really triggered the uh, the riot to happen in the first place? Again, it's important to to think more broadly when we when we think about causality mm-hmm. with respect to the 1921 Tulsa race riot. When I say that, what I mean is it's important to have a sense of our national history when looking at an event like the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot. If you have a sense of national history, then you know that the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot comes on the heels of a number of other events that were called race riots in United States history in the early part of the 20th century. 1919, the summer and fall of 1919 were dubbed Red Summer Mm. by James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP. And that was a reference to these so-called race riots that were happening in places like Chicago, Illinois, and Longview, Texas, and Washington, D.C., and uh, Omaha, Nebraska, Elaine, Arkansas, all over. More than 25 significant race riots in America in the year 1919, wow. two years before what happened in Tulsa. That's part of the national context. Mm-hmm. Another part of the national context to remember that's also – essential to understanding what happened here in Tulsa and elsewhere is the phenomenon that we commonly call lynching, which is what I call domestic terrorism. It's Mm -hmm. it's early domestic terrorism. The idea behind lynching was to punish a particular black person for a, a real or perceived legal violation or a real or perceived social slight, and more importantly, to send a message to the group to which that person belongs about their relative worth and their relative place in society. So a number of the lynch victims, in fact, most of the lynch victims during the early part of the 20th century were black people. Yeah. And this was domestic terrorism, uh, 
aimed at really cementing racism into the social consciousness of black folks and white folks as well. So that's that's part of of the causality. Mm-hmm. The other part of the causality is the rise of hate groups like the KKK, yeah. which gained a huge presence in Oklahoma in the 1920s, particularly the latter part of the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So, so those systemic institutional factors are the leading causal factors of the 1921 Tulsa race riot. Yeah, and can- there were some there were some particularistic. Um, factors that were more trigger factors, but those are the sort of overarching factors. Yeah, and Ken, I, I always heard stuff about, you know, when African Americans came back from the the World War, you know, just their attitudes about how they were treated as well, and in a sense, because we had better expectations for ourselves, it's almost like when we came home, it's like we kind of didn't know our place, in a sense, and that kind of caused some agitation. I, I kind of heard that around that time as well. That- yeah, that's true, and I think that's true in World War One and World War Two as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because un- unfortunately, uh, racism, if it abated at all, didn't abate very much between the two world wars. Mm-hmm. So you had soldiers going over into foreign lands, risking life and, and limb, uh, and being treated much more respectfully by foreigners than in many cases they were treated at home. Mm-hmm. So many of those people who came back were more emboldened to stand up for their their rights and engage in in agitation um, so, that they, so that they could achieve what they believed to be full citizenship. So they were less tolerant of some of the horrific, blatant acts of racism that existed in the United States and actually persisted until um, – until, until the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. so that's that's part of it. And the Tulsa race riot, other additional factors, localized factors, included something I call land lust. Land, oh yes, land lust. Land lust, because mm-hmm. the Greenville community is located across the Frisco tracks, and it abuts the downtown community. It was a very desirable part mm-hmm. of of Tulsa that was wanted by uh, industrialists and also wanted by the railroad. I see. So that that's that's part of it, and and the other part of it here in, in Tulsa is the fact that uh, one particular media outlet, a local afternoon newspaper called the Tulsa Tribune, oh, yeah. really published a series of inflammatory articles and editorials that really inflamed the white community and fueled the hostilities that that already existed based on the other factors um, that we've already talked about. So we have this sort of combustible mix that's in play already, and we need something to trigger that, That was an in, which was an incident between two teenagers, a white girl and a black boy in a downtown elevator. That's really the trigger event. If that hadn't happened, something else almost assuredly would have happened uh, to cause what we know as as the 1921 Tulsa race riot. I do want to say, I use the term race riot because that's the historical designation of this event and the other events throughout the throughout our our history in the in the 20th century. And when we think about why the event is called what it's called, we need to think about who writes the history 
Mm-hmm. Who's at the table when decisions on naming are are made? Right. We weren't at the table. We didn't have we didn't play a part in, in naming this event. Right. If if we did, we we may have called it um, a massacre. Yeah. We may have called it a pogrom. We yeah. may have called it an assault. We may have called it a burning. Mm-hmm. We may have called it a battle. But we almost certainly would not have called it a race riot. That is a good point. That is a good point. We'll be right back. What they don't tell them, we've been underwater since they threw us in the boat, selling cotton picking blues, rock and roll, railroad building, serving white America before we was dope dealing. Brick laid the birth of a nation, it's the rock, white house, black man, plantation, it's Barack, but we still can't cross the street without the cops trying to send my man as well, a whole neighborhood watch. They changed us to the auction block, but now we changing the locks, cause even below Riley's daughter out here drinking so rock, now that's what I call the 21st century. Well, Megan Kelly trying to tell me Santa's white and since grandmother was right. I just remember rap stars, the new rock. I pull strings like the orchestra, shut down your corporate. Nat Turner run up in the doors to your doors, through with a hundred niggas ready and a hundred thousand more for you. Future Martin Luther dreamt when he was a man. I feel the love my mama fought for, see the stars on. So, like you said, it was triggered between uh, a young black male and a, and a and a white female. They, I guess, they thought something was going on. If you could talk about that, and then talk about what proceeded to the actual riot happening, and then from there, what happened during the riot. The trigger incident is an incident involving a white girl named Sarah Page, who's 17 years old. She operates an elevator in a downtown building called the Drexel Building. Elevators are manually operated. Some of your listeners may have actually experienced a ride in a manually operated elevator. Um, it was Monday, May 30th, 1921. Dick Rowland was a black boy who had dropped out of Booker T. Washington High School, the all-black celebrated high school here. And he he worked shining shoes downtown. Now there were a number of wealthy oil barons who came and went downtown, and to, to shine shoes could actually earn a person a nice nice living at the time. Dick Rowland needed to use the restroom. Facilities were segregated, so he goes to the Drexel Building downtown, where Sarah Page is operating the elevator. He boards the elevator. Um, something happens. We don't know exactly what happened on the elevator, but it caused the elevator to jerk or to lurch, and Dick Rowland bumped into Sarah Page. Sarah Page overreacted. She screamed. The elevator comes back down to the lobby. Dick Rowland runs out of the elevator because Sarah Page is screaming. Sarah Page follows. A clerk from a nearby locally owned store called Renberg's comes running to Sarah's assistance. She is by this time hysterical. Mm-hmm. And that is the elevator incident. That's the trigger incident. The incident becomes much more sinister because it's picked up by the paper that I described, the Tulsa Mm, Tribune, and the next day, that afternoon, because it's an afternoon newspaper, published an article entitled, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. Wow. And the the substance of of the piece is that Dick Rowland tried to rape Sarah Page in broad daylight in a public building in downtown Tulsa. Mm. 
how can we possibly stand for that? That's sort of what the article uh, insinuates. Incredible. And so people are understandably upset when they read that, particularly if it's their, their local newspaper and they believe that. Mm-hmm. So white people begin to clamor for Dick Rowland's lynching. Dick Rowland's arrested by the sheriff, Sheriff McCullough. Sheriff McCullough takes Dick Rowland downtown to the to the courthouse on top floor of which is, is the jail, puts him in the jail, but the sheriff begins to hear those murmurings of a possible lynching. He's concerned for Dick Rowland's safety. So the sheriff calls down to the office of the Tulsa Star. That's the black newspaper that I had mentioned previously. Mm-hmm. That's the forerunner to the Oklahoma Eagle. There are a number of black men gathered at the offices of the Tulsa Star. They are concerned as well. Um, a few dozen black men march down to the courthouse in support of Dick Rowland. The sheriff meets them. The sheriff becomes increasingly concerned because there's a large white mob gathering on the lawn. He implores the black men to retreat back down into the Greenwood community, which they do, but their concern has not abated. Um, They are still really concerned about Dick Rowland's safety, in fact, his very life. They are concerned because they are aware of lynchings generally throughout the United States, and they're concerned even more because there had been a public lynching of a white boy mm-hmm. about nine months prior in the Tulsa area. He had been taken taken out of the jail by a mob, taken to a public place, and hanged. And according to eyewitnesses, law enforcement officers directed traffic to this very public celebration, which, which many lynchings were. Mm-hmm. People reportedly fought over scraps of clothing from this, this boy after he had been been hanged. The boy's name was Roy Belton. Mm. So the black men in the Greenville community were aware um, of how justice could be morphed into something less than that uh, by these mobs. So so they were really, really concerned. They gathered about 75 men, marched back down to the courthouse. Some of the men were World War I veterans who had weapons. They brought their weapons. They knew how to use them. And they were intent on what they what they thought was saving Dick Rowland's life. They get down to the courthouse again. The white mob had swelled enormously. It would number in the thousands, ultimately. Words were exchanged, and a struggle ensued between a white man and a black man, a gun discharged, and things go south from there. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the Greenwood community is invaded by a large mob of white men, again, numbering in the thousands, who burned and stole and shot their way throughout the Greenwood community, essentially burning uh, just about the entire community to the ground, destroying some 1,250 structures, uh, including homes and and businesses, forcing thousands of African Americans into shelters set up by the Red Cross, and really – decimating the community uh, for for days, months, and even years to come. Gosh, how long was the riot itself? The riot itself was, was really only a matter of hours, about mm. 16 hours, wow. beginning on, on May 31st and, and concluding on the next afternoon of June 1st. The National Guard was called in from Oklahoma City to quell the disturbance, and but by the time the National Guard got here, unfortunately, much of the Greenwood community was in, in, in ruins. Mm. And so it was just a matter of um, escorting people to these 
these various encampments set up by the Red Cross. And very much like people of Japanese ancestry were interned during World War II, yeah. we had our own version that predates that, our version of internment. Black men and some women and children were taken to these centers, these internment camps, and many of them were only allowed out of the encampments if they had a white person vouch for them. There literally were green cards wow. that these people had. And again, this predates what the internment experience that we really know about, which is the World War II Japanese mm. ancestry internment. Wow. So what's really remarkable, though, is that the community was able to rebuild and rebound against you know, almost insurmountable odds. The the city tried to rezone the Greenwood District, which would have made it much more difficult for people to re relocate here. Mm -hmm. The city tried to change the fire code to make it more stringent, which again would have made it more difficult for people to, to rebuild build homes and such. Those efforts were thwarted by people like Buck Colbert Franklin, John Franklin's father. Um, people had had difficulty buying lumber, uh, wow. to, to rebuild, so they went to went out of state, went to Kansas to get their lumber. All sorts of obstacles were put in the way of these folks, but they um, never let that human human spirit uh, die out. They were committed to to rebuilding, and they did just that. And as a tribute to their perseverance and their resilience, the National Negro Business League, which was the Black Chamber of Commerce founded by Booker T. Washington, held its annual meeting here in 1925, and that's four years after the devastation of the riot, mm. that this community was able to host that National Negro Business League conference. That is truly amazing. That is truly amazing, because they didn't re receive any kind of form of recompense from, I'm, I'm thinking, the state or or, or, the, or federal in any, in any sort of way. No, mm. no. Um, unfortunately, there was no disaster declaration from which they could receive, you know, federal funds or anything like that. And the, the local Chamber of Commerce made a number of promises about helping with the redevelopment, but really followed through on, on, on scarcely mm. any of those promises. Wow. So these people were left to their own devices, getting money from, you know, relatives and friends and organizations like um, the NAACP, for example, headquarters in, in New York sent a contribution down here after the riot. Mm -hmm. So this is something, this was a national event. Um, people were well aware of it in terms of national um, civil rights uh, leaders. Walter White, who was the executive secretary of the NAACP, I don't know if you know who Walter White was, but if you've seen a picture of Walter White, you, you would know that he can pass for White. He's very mm -hmm. fair-skinned, straight-haired, uh, light-eyed guy who was black, but if you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't know that he was black. So he actually snuck into town, and surreptitiously he, he um, talked to people and, and did a summary of the immediate aftermath of the riot published in in a, in the magazine called The Nation. Oh yes. In the summer of 1921. What a great he, article. What What did he find out? What did he learn mostly from that? Well, I think he he, he learned basically what I've what I've already talked mm -hmm. about as a. The, the sort of rigid segregation, um, the um, the overwhelming odds against black people who are just trying to, to sort of show themselves to, to be um, to be industrious mm -hmm. 
and upstanding citizens. This is what happens even even to the best of us. That was kind of the gist of the article. I see. We'll be right back. Take a minute to catch your breath and put both hands up, eat skittles and go to sleep on your grandmother's couch and up police state. The state's higher than what they were when pasta new said it. Gummy headed for newspapers and Bill Cosby was a rapist. Missed out on how to catch a predator when it was taped. The Norman got recruited for state time, was picked up by ISIS, new enemy of the state. White House afraid the good fight was fought and lost in the 60s. With Betty Shabazz and Coretta Sky King misery. But privy to the fact that we ain't gotta live in the rack to feel us impact. Hear that? Wait, listen. That's how they whistle when you walk by one of the greatest deceptions of all time. Keep the music and follow signs all point to the root. Disregard fruit, the kind of hidden motive and truth. Lord, please protect my soul. I think I lost control. I'm stuck at my crossroads. So we can party till it's time to go. It's all for the games until. What did we as a nation, you know, introspectively learn from the aftermath of the riot? Well, I think there there are a number of things that we could have learned. I'm not sure that we have learned them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the danger of otherizing people, the danger of setting ourselves in opposition to to another group of people, mm-hmm. and and seeing ourselves somehow superior. Because mm-hmm. when we do that, then we can justify all manner of atrocities against those other people yeah. who who are not not as as worthy as as we so that's a that's a huge danger right i think and certainly in retrospect even things like the designation of the event that we've talked about earlier that to me signals the importance of having a seat at the table Mm. when all manner of decisions are made Mm -hmm. i think we've also learned here in tulsa of the danger of not confronting our history warts and all because history doesn't go away. You can try to sweep it under the rug. You can try to bury it, but it's still it's still going to be there. It's going to haunt you even more, perhaps, if you delay the reckoning. Right, right. That's a good point. Now, um, you know, so once Greenwood District, it, it seemed like in a matter of four or five years, it, it kind of regenerated and, and was thriving again. Uh, and I think it was for many years after that. What then led to the decline of its prosperity, because we know it's not how it is today. The Greenwood District peaked in, in the early to mid-1940s, mm-hmm. so there are more than 200 documented black-owned and operated businesses in the Greenwood District. Again, but that's during Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. So a number of factors changed over time, particularly in the 60s and 70s, that led to the decline of the Greenwood community as a uh, black entrepreneurial mecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, I would say, is integration. We've talked about this before, yeah. but integration, although its salutary effects arguably outnumber the negative ones, mm-hmm. when you're talking about a black entrepreneurial community, and you're talking about a community supported by black folks being willing to confine their dollars to a to a geographic area, um, 
integration allows the outflow of, of dollars and doesn't necessarily um, guarantee a commensurate level of dollar inflow from the white community. So, so black people now have more options in terms of, uh, terms of what they can purchase and where they can purchase it, and they exercise that, but it undermines the businesses that exist in their very own community. Mm-hmm. So in- integration is a factor. Urban renewal is a factor here in Tulsa and in communities I've spoken with really all over the nation because urban renewal tended to target people of color and minority communities for things like highway placement oh, yeah. and, and, and um, gentrification, again, undermines the financial foundation of the community, um, often impedes the business that was going on in the community prior to, to, to urban renewal. Another factor, I think, is uh, what I call the Walmartization of America, which, which mm-hmm. really is just a casual reference to uh, these huge mega enterprises that can take advantage of economies of scale. Right. It's hard to compete with those when you're a mom-and-pop type operation, and that's not necessarily something that's, that's, that's race-specific. It's just something that, that, that is. Yeah. The new economy, it's, it's just much more difficult for Main Street hardware, for example, to coexist with Walmart, which has, in everything, a lower cost, right? Right. That's a factor. The other thing is when you have a community that that really is rich with mom-and-pop-type operations, Mm -hmm. business mentorship is important. Otherwise, when the founders of the business get older and get feeble or retire or die or move away, the businesses go with them Uh, unless there's been some sort of of systematic mentorship process so that somebody's ready to take over. Good point. So, so, So that's a factor as well. Yeah. So all these things taken together led us to where we are today, which is we have a smattering of small businesses in Greenwood, but it's a different uh, community composition. So, so the community is really heavily skewed toward arts, entertainment, and education and culture. There's the Greenwood Cultural Center, which is a great place to visit. There's John F. Franklin Reconciliation Park, which is a beautiful park that commemorates uh, the Greenwood history. There are two of the historic churches that were here in the heart of Greenwood, Vernon AME and Mount Zion Baptist Church, that are still here. There's now One Oak Field, which is the Tulsa Drillers minor league baseball park, which is beautiful, but but it's an entertainment venue. There is a place called Green Arch right across the street from my office, which is a residential and, and some commercial facility. There is the public television station, OETA. There's a branch of Langston University campus in the Greenwood community, and there's also a branch of Oklahoma State University in the community. Hmm. So we have this hodgepodge of arts, entertainment, um, culture, and education primarily here in the Greenwood District today as opposed to um, large numbers of small entrepreneurial concerns and residential facilities. I see. Because in in part of the book, when you start talking about the Renaissance – it wasn't really much of a physical renaissance. It, right. it seemed like it was more of a, a spiritual. And, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a renaissance of spirit, really. Um, so so the, the, it is a renaissance in the fact that the community has come back to be dynamic, mm. but it's not dynamic in the, in, in the sense of being a mirror to what it was prior. Right. And, and also, 
it's it's a it's a renaissance of spirit in the sense that there is a keener focus now on on two aspects of our past. One is rekindling entrepreneurship, not just in the Greenwood community, but among African Americans generally. Mm-hmm. And two is um, enhancing the community so that it's much more poised for the influx of cultural tourists that mm-hmm. come here. Mm-hmm. We want to increase the number of cultural tourists that already come. So we need to have more for them to do. Uh, for example, interactive kiosks. We've got the park. We've got the Greenwood Cultural Center. Um, what else can we add to what's already here to make this um, a rich experience for for tourists? Uh, I see. So it's almost like an open air museum in a sense. I guess that's the way to put it. Sort of. I mean, we're we're looking at, for example, putting a gateway at Greenwood and Archer, kind of the entry point into the Greenwood community. Um, adding a walking path that that links the Greenwood Cultural Center and John F. Franklin Reconciliation Park, enhancing the Greenwood Cultural Center by adding a museum-quality facility to store artifacts and such. A whole lot of things that we're looking at doing as we approach the 100th anniversary in 2021 uh, to have the community at its optimal level during that time when we know we'll receive a lot of visitors. We, we get lots of visitors already. Yeah. And I think we would, we would get more if there were more um, interactive options for people once they get down into the community. Makes sense. So you talked about trying to rekindle entrepreneurship. Um, if you can elaborate a little bit on that, are you talking about having classes where are, are, is it centered around African-Americans really understanding entrepreneurship? If you can talk about right. it. Right. I mean, we have uh, Senator Kevin Matthews, who's the chair of the Centennial Commission, for at least a couple of years has had um, a shadowing program during the summer so that teenagers mm-hmm. shadow black entrepreneurs and they get paid for, for doing that. It's kind of a little summer internship program. Mm-hmm. It's been very successful. So that's, that's one thing. There are a number of proposals that we're looking at that would offer – uh, coding workshops for mm. for teenagers, mm. which which you know ties into the STEM initiatives that, go, that are going on all over the the nations. But these these would be specifically for for people um, in the Greenwood community, and more specifically for Af- for the African American community to get these kids who are underserved with STEM related programs to to give them other options, right? Mm-hmm. To, to make them aware of, of STEM careers as a, as, a, as a viable option for them, not necessarily to work for somebody else, but to work for themselves so as entrepreneurs right. doing STEM-related stuff. Right. That's, that's, that's good. Excellent. Like existentially, you know, wh- wh- what, what can we learn about ourselves as a people of this nation? And uh, African-Americans in particular, you know, f- from the revitalization of the Greenwood District, and, you know, in the establishment of everything else that's going on now in the Greenwood District, what what can we learn? Well, one of the great lessons is is resilience. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at these people who, who were the founders of the Greenwood community, particularly the entrepreneurs, as role models. Yeah. And if, if they could be successful in the face of the extreme hostilities that they faced in the early part of the 20th century, then – we should be able to do just about anything. Mm-hmm. And I say that fully aware that, that racism still exists right. and that there are, in fact, barriers. Mm-hmm. 
but those barriers are barriers that we can surmount. Right. And so we have to work on dual tracks. We have to work within the system as it is uh, and, and, and achieve our success within that realm and simultaneously work to dismantle um, the discriminatory negative aspects of the system as it is. Mm-hmm. So I think those the Greenwood pioneers sort of taught us that, yeah. if nothing else. Absolutely. So how has writing this book changed you at all? Um, I think I'm just more attuned to our forebears and, and, and what they had to endure and more appreciative of what I have, even though it's not, I think, if I were honest, I would say it's not the, not the absolute full measure of citizenship because of, because of some, the, the institutional and systemic racism that still exists. Mm-hmm. Whatever I face pales in comparison to what other people have faced. Mm-hmm. And I, have, I certainly have a deeper, more abiding appreciation for that, and I think I'm able to to plow through obstacles somewhat better because of that. Because of that, yeah. And 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 lastly, what do you want the reader to mainly take away from your book? Well, for one thing, just an appreciation for African American contribution to to America generally. Um, for a long time, I've said that. If, if I had my druthers, we wouldn't have Black History Month, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have it because right. we wouldn't need it because our history would be integrated into American history. It's impossible to teach American history without teaching black history. Mm-hmm. So this is just one additional piece of the black experience, and it, 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 I think it gives insight into – the, the contributions of African Americans and the obstacles that African Americans have have overcome just just to to, to be to be ordinary mm-hmm. just striving to be an ordinary American mm-hmm. has been a monumental chore for African Americans throughout history and I think if we understand that then we're better able to to deal with some of the troublesome issues that we we face around race, for example, the police community dynamic and the and the the, the absence of, of of trust, a lot of that has to do with our history. Mm-hmm. If we all understood our history, not just black people, but black people and white people understood our real history, yeah. then we we could understand better how we got to the point at which we are today. And once we get to that point, a better understanding of, of why we are where we are, then I think it's easier to come to a place of um, improvement, if not resolution, of some of these abiding issues that we face. Well, I just want to say, Hannibal B. Johnson, thank you so much for being on Book Speaks and Beyond. You're absolutely welcome. I enjoyed it. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we will then 
put toward the operations of this show. Um, and also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. Explore.